Hey, welcome to the Africa Podcast. My name is Mikey Menno. Today on the series, we have Kim Ghattas, the award-winning author and journalist and recent podcaster. Kim is an amazing journalist, and I'm excited to talk to her about her books, The Black Wave, The Secretary, and her recent podcast, People Like Us. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Welcome, everyone, to a live taping of our Africa podcast. Our special guest is Kim Ratas, who is an award-winning journalist, author, and Middle East expert. Kim has over 20 years of on-air experience as a radio and television correspondent and anchor for the BBC and the Financial Times and is a contributing writer for The Atlantic. We're talking today with Kim about her brand new podcast, People Like Us, as well as her best-selling books, The Secretary, A Journey with Hillary Clinton from Beirut to the Heart of American Power. And Black Wave, Saudi Arabia, Iran, and the 40 year rivalry that unraveled culture, religion, and collective memory in the Middle East. Kim, welcome to Afikra. Hi, Mikey. It's great to be here. It's so nice to have you. Um, I remember the first time we met a few years ago um, at Salon Beirut, uh, and we were talking about Afikra, and you were in the middle of writing or maybe at the beginning of writing uh, Black Wave. Um, so it's nice to be reconnected so many years later. Um, let me ask you the first question, which was, which is, if I was sitting down with teenager Kim, hmm. did mm-hmm. teenager Kim think that she was going to be a journalist writing about the Middle East, spending 20 years writing about the Middle East? Actually, yes. <laughs> because teenager Kim... Uh, decided at the age of 13 that she wanted to be a journalist. Uh, I may not have been able to predict exactly how my career was going to unfold. I may not have envisioned books or a conversation with you or, or a podcast like people like us. But I did want to be a journalist from the age of 13. And I think... There were several reasons why, and I, in fact, sat down at one point to write them out as I was trying to decide what I should be when I uh, when I was going to grow up. As you know, children ask, get asked all the time, "What what do you want to be when you grow up?" And I decided I had to have a serious answer for that. Um, I'd had several iterations preceding my decision to be a journalist. I wanted to be a detective at some point. And I read a lot of detective stories and I had a detective manual, you know, the old fashioned one with the, you know, um, uh, how to get prints of things, etc. how to solve a mystery. So actually from there to being a journalist is, is not, you know, a huge step because as journalists, we elucidate the facts as well. And so I sat down and wrote, in essence, an essay to myself where I went through the different things that I like to do. I really enjoyed taking uh, pictures, so I enjoyed photography, but that wasn't enough because I also really enjoyed writing. I loved writing. I was good at it. Um, I wanted to, I really loved being around people and I loved food and cooking. So I thought maybe um, a hotel or a restaurant, but I didn't want to be tied down in one place. And I also felt very driven to explain or try to understand as a kid, you're not explaining anything yet. You're trying to understand the world around you. And I felt 
that if only I could explain to the outside world what was happening in Lebanon, maybe the war would end because we were still living through the civil war at the time, which lasted from 1975 to 1990. So combining those different things together, photography, writing, enjoying being around people, talking to people, asking questions, and wanting to say more to the world about Lebanon, I came to the conclusion that I had to be a journalist. And I pursued that in a very, very determined, dogged way uh, until I got there. Do you feel like your primary responsibility is to explain things out loud to yourself or to explain things to other people so that they understand the world that you are living in? Do you feel like you understand the problems before you actually project them outwards? Or are you really in this conversation with yourself? I don't pretend to understand uh, the problems better than others. Otherwise, I would have found the solution to uh, uh, the, the, the road to, to world peace. Um, it's, it's a conversation with myself in the sense that I'm trying to um, explain or trying to find the facts that enable us to understand what is happening around us. And it is a conversation with myself to the extent that it has to also, to some extent, interest me, right? And, and it has to be part of my base of knowledge. You know, I, I, I would like to understand you know, climate change better and the science behind it, but but I'm not that kind of journalist. So I focus on international politics, on international relations, on foreign policy, on Middle Eastern uh, contemporary history. And that then becomes a conversation, of course, with the readers, the viewers, the, the listeners, uh, who are really my primary focus when I'm doing my work and have been my primary focus from the moment I started as a young uh, upstart journalist writing for the Daily Star and also working as what we call a stringer and fixer for foreign news organizations. So international journalists, American journalists who come to Lebanon and they would want somebody to take them around and translate for them and make appointments for them with politicians or activists or cultural icons, etc. And that was me in my Volkswagen, um, you know, picking them up from the airport <laughs> and driving them around and translating for them. And I learned a lot from the greats of American journalists by, by doing that. You know, I really started in a way at, at the bottom while also doing an internship at the Daily Star and doing translation for their star reporter, Nicholas Blanford, covering South Lebanon. So I, I, I'm not actually sure that saying it's a conversation between me and myself is the right way. It's, it's, it's only a conversation with myself in the sense that I have to first understand what I'm trying to explain to others. But I'm really incredibly focused on what others might be interested in and where are the... The, the, the spots of darkness that I can shed light on and how can I make this chaotic world that we live in feel just a little bit less incomprehensible. And that's in a way what how it started, right? Growing up in Lebanon during a war, wondering, you know, why the hell doesn't it end? You know, who can do something about this? And then growing up, of course, you realize it's not that simple. There isn't any one person or any one country even that can push a button and change the direction of things or 
put an end to to uh, to a conflict. And yeah. I remember, and we'll talk maybe about um, my book, The Secretary. I remember when I was traveling with the Secretary of State doing that job as a BBC correspondent, I realized from the questions that these American officials were getting, why is America doing this? Why does America do that? Why don't you tell, you know, our president he should, you know, release this activist? Why don't you, you know, stop providing weapons to this or that country? I realized that, you know, people still have the same questions. And so the questions that the kind of questions that I had um, growing up. So, so in a way, you know, I've remained true to my mission to try to elucidate some of those answers to the extent that, that you can in what is a very complex world. Yeah. I'm curious about this book in particular. I wanted to ask you, but I'm glad that you brought it up. So um, for those who can't see the screen, this is called The Secretary, A Journey with Hillary Clinton from, the, from Beirut to the Heart of American Power. I'm curious... Who do you think the public was in your mind as you were writing this book? Um, was it primarily American voters who you, who are trying to think through what the Ameri what the White House should do and the relationship between the White House and the Arab world and how to how it affects their daily lives, or were you thinking sort of a more global audience or of or a Middle Eastern audience as well? In fact, I was thinking about both because the book is, is really a journey. I'm on a plane with the Secretary of State. Uh, in this instance, it was Hillary Clinton, whom I covered for four years. And we traveled around the world and we went from Pakistan to Morocco to um, Kenya to uh, China and Japan. And, you know, we went everywhere. We traveled 300,000 miles with her. And you're really sitting, you, you have a front row seat to the making of American foreign policy. And you can ask American officials all the questions that you want. And sometimes they'll answer, they'll answer in full detail and sometimes they'll obfuscate. But I always found that Clinton and her team were quite forthcoming uh, and were willing to engage in a thoughtful conversation to try to explain their point of view. And they were also willing to listen. So the book that I've written is a journey. It is my journey as somebody who grew up on the receiving end of American power, uh, trying to now elucidate and try to shed light on how American power works, having achieved uh, uh, the next step in my career where I end up on a plane with the Secretary of State traveling around the world, including to Beirut. It is a journey into the machine of American foreign policy, a, it, and it is a machine. I mean, it's huge. You know, the State Department alone is a massive building. And then you have the Pentagon and you have the executive office of uh, the president, which sits next door to the White House. And then you have the National Security Council. And, you know, in countries like ours and in, in the Middle East or elsewhere in China, where decision making is much more top down, the person at the top says it and therefore it shall be done. It's much more messy with within a, a sure. administration bureaucratic trying to um trying to explain a little bit how that work and who are the human beings at the heart of this machine you know fallible human beings who don't have all the answers themselves as much as we think they do they actually don't and they're trying to do the best they can for their country of course with the information that they have at hand which they're getting in in real time and so the result is a book that is addressed both to an American audience, which is why it was a bestseller in the US, to try to explain to them how 
their foreign policy is seen in the rest of the world, what role their country plays in this global, global order to the benefit very often, of course, of the US itself. And I think that's something that became a real topic of debate and uh, an acrimony in the 2016 election in the US, where there is this reflexive tendency inside the electorate in the US to reject American uh, um, power and involvement abroad. And you know we can go into the goods and bads of that. But it also became a book definitely addressed to a global audience, which has questions about what is America? What is America about? And what is this foreign policy machine? And how does it work? And why, why does it sometimes not work? And what are the mistakes that are being made and, and why? To try to sort of, you know, shed a light on something that is often discussed in sort of nefarious terms. You know, there's a plot, there's a, there's a, um, there's a decision, there's a, you know, there's a game being played. And, and of course, realpolitik is often a, a heartless game, but it's, it's less dark and, um, and less methodical than we sometimes uh, tend to believe. Yeah, I'm, I'm always curious about like people, uh, people in your position who have seen it from the vantage point that I have right now, but also from the inside, right? From the inside of that to, incredible- I mean, Inside with, with limits, obviously. I mean, I'm inside of the plane, the at least. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sitting in a situation room, but you are on the plane. You're on you the know, plane, right? Example, you're on the plane in March, 2011, uh, ben Ali has just fallen in, in Tunisia. Hosni Mubarak has just fallen in Egypt. There's an uprising uh, starting in um, or ongoing in Libya. It's starting in Syria. There's uh, de- demonstrations in Bahrain. The Saudis and the Emiratis are sending armed forces into Bahrain across the causeway. There's a tsunami in Japan. And we're on the plane with the Secretary of State and this briefing book that she has is just a mess because it's things are changing in real time. And officials with her, you know, we're supposed to be traveling to the Middle East, to Egypt and to Tunisia. And to first we make a stop in Paris because uh, she's meeting her counterparts from the G7. The Libyans are there. The Emiratis are there. Um, the Japanese are there because of the tsunami and it's all happening in real time. So you really get a sense of what a country like the United States has to deal with as a, as a superpower in real time. And in fact, this, this, what I'm describing now is, is part of my latest um, episode of the podcast, People Like Us, where I interview Jeffrey Feltman, who is a former ambassador to Lebanon, former assistant secretary of state for Near Eastern Affairs and later uh, top diplomat at the UN, and he explains and he takes you inside what, what it's like to, as Americans <laughs> like to say, use this expression, uh, uh, walk and chew gum at the same time. You know, they were having to walk, chew gum, and and juggle, uh, you know, with 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 their arms and and legs at the same yeah. time. Well, let me ask you a question about this because, given that perspective, I wonder what advice would you have to you know, young people across the Arab world who are trying to better understand how to engage uh, with American foreign policy, right? And how to sort of productively figure out how can we how can we use this relationship for our own interests? Everyone's everyone's working in their own interests, but mm-hmm. when when there is misunderstanding, there is lack of 
efficiency, there is lack of productivity. And so as young people all across the Arab world are trying to understand, okay, we need to better understand American foreign policy and, and, and the State Department, how the State Department actually works, not how it may work in our imagination, how it actually works. What is the best way that we can begin to work with this very complicated institution in order to further our own objectives? So this is an interesting question, and, and the answer is not straightforward. So first of all, if you want to better understand how it works, um, you know, without wanting to sort of blow my own horn, read the book, right, really, because it is, it is written in a very accessible way for a wide public. It is narrative. It's a story, but it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, not, it's nonfiction. And you'll travel around the world. You'll get an inside tour of the American foreign policy machine, and you'll get a better granular understanding of what drives some of the foreign policy making and what drives some of the people. With the caveat that from one presidency to the next, things change, you know. Um, in a way, this is a document of history because, you know, then in, by 2016, we got President Trump and the way he made foreign policy was, you know, like no one else had ever seen. The interview with Jeffrey Feldman is, is really, I find, very insightful. You know, you have to remember that as a BBC correspondent, I was there to ask the tough questions. And I took officials to task and I prodded and pushed and tried to get, you know, um, difficult answers out of them, whether it was Clinton or Condoleezza Rice or John Kerry or others. In these interviews, and there'll be one of those for every episode, uh, for every season that we do with people like us, the question, the, the, the purpose is to shed more light rather than, you know, have a heated debate or a heated conversation. So I ask questions that are challenging, but that allow um, Jeff to, you know, take us into the, the process, uh, whether he's meeting Ali Khamenei later as, as um, diplomat at the UN or going to Pyongyang and how a visit like this happens, right? So this is in terms of the machinery. Second, yes, there are a lot of misunderstandings between the Middle East and the US for many, many reasons because of US involvement and the way it is involved in the region because of its unequivocal support for Israel, because of its support for uh, dictators like Hosni Mubarak at the time, but Abdel Fattah Sisi today. And so the misunderstanding is threefold it's or twofold. It's the misunderstanding, the sort of the, the, the difficult relationship uh, between the U.S. and um, the region. And then it's the misunderstanding and the vast chasm between us as a young generation and our own leaders, let alone America. Right. You have to understand that America is pursuing its own interests. And what we have to do as citizens of this region is try to get through in every way we know possible with our own podcasts, with our own books, with our own interviews on international media, with our own engagement as activists, as NGO workers, as entrepreneurs, that it is in America's interests to get beyond the dichotomy of dictators or instability, right? That's how America sees the region. If you have instability in the region, you can't secure shipping lanes, you can't secure access to oil, you can't secure Israel's security. And that just becomes a mess, which is kind of what, where they tried to go with the Arab uprisings. They, mm -hmm. Obama wanted to give it a chance. And then very quickly they gave up because, you know, they're on this 
you know, four-year cycle. You could argue it's even a two-year cycle. Every two years, there are elections for the midterms, and then there's a presidential election. And so they don't have time to move the ship, which is a huge ship, in a different direction in time for it to deliver results so that these results can be sustainable. And so it's also up to us to change the conversation uh, in the region with our you know, elected leaders to run for elections, to change the face of um, the political scene in the region so that we as, I'm not Gen Z, but, you know, you know, everyone coming behind me as Gen Z or everyone who's still looking for a better future for this region, that we are able to get across and, and really show what governance and justice and accountability can do for this region, for us, because we deserve it, and for American interests, because America is not a charity organization, right? They're not going to remove a dictator only because, um, you know, it suits us as the people. They're not going to stop importing oil from Saudi Arabia because, you know, they don't like Mohammed bin Salman, although they, they, they were trying to get there. And, and it didn't work. Again, it didn't work. America has interests, just like Mohammed Fattah al-Sisi has his own interests. Everyone. Everyone has their own interests. Yeah. And so... It's it's not um, it's not realistic to expect them to go against American national interests. What we need to do is to find ways to align our interests for a better future and America's interests. Okay, I want to move on. I want to talk a little bit about your next book project, which is in many ways um, very, very it's very different because with the secretary you're looking at contemporary uh the contemporary sort of world as it's unfolding you know you're on the plane it's a diary of sorts you're saying oh my god this is happening right now let me walk you through this entire story take me back to the moment that you decided that you would focus on a series of events uh, in the 70s and afterwards um and why you decided to try to explain this story to yourself and to the world so Black Wave is very much a continuation of my reflection or the reflection I did while I was writing The Secretary. And my next book, the third book, which you know I'm just starting uh, to work on right now, is an amalgam of both of those books and the continuation of my, my reflection. When I was researching The Secretary, I came across the events of 1979 in Saudi Arabia in Mecca, the siege of Mecca, which happens in November of that year when Saudi Sunni zealots lay siege to the mosque for two weeks, try to, in essence, I mean, I'm summarizing um, <clears throat> and simplifying, in essence, trying to make, you know, the House of Saud kowtow to their demands, which have been fed by the conservative clerical establishment and um, making demands of the House of Saud to, you know, for one, distribute the profits of oil much more um, equally between the people, uh, e eject all foreigners from uh, from the Arabian Peninsula and generally be, you know, be better, better Muslims. So I knew about the Islamic revolution or the Iranian revolution of 1979. I knew about the invasion of Afghanistan at the end of 1979, but I, I didn't know about the siege of Mecca. So that was how that sort of started. I started wondering, you know, 
What's all this stuff happening at the same time in 1979? The other event that I started digging into a bit more as well while I was researching uh, the secretary were events in Lebanon in the 1980s with the attacks against the marine barracks, the embassy bombings, the hijackings, the kidnappings, etc., and trying to place those in context in terms of American foreign policy and what that did at the time to America's posture in the world and how that became, you know, the ground zero for what we call Fortress America, right? You know, embassy, big embassies behind big blast walls. It didn't used to be like that. You could, you know, used to be able to walk into an embassy. It was in Beirut in particular, it was on on the Corniche and, you know, it wasn't protected. Um, You know, I mean, it had some protection, but nothing like what we see today with embassies around the world, not not just in Lebanon. And then what happened was 2014, on top of that, uh, we had the rise of ISIS, which took over uh, parts of Iraq and and Syria and imposed this, you know, gruesome, bloody rule, which came also with a cultural desertification, you know, the breaking of statues, the ransacking of libraries, which, you know, made me think back to the time when I was in Saudi Arabia uh, and uh, visiting, you know, Saudi Arabia, reporting on Saudi Arabia and getting to a better understanding of their Salafi Hanbali uh, inter- uh, interpretation of Islam or school of Islam. Uh, you know, the term that we use is Wahhabism. Um, they, you know, the Saudis don't don't like that. And, you know, being confronted with the lack of museums, the lack of portraits, the lack of um, statues, except for the Corniche in, in Jeddah, And then that same year, speaking to my sister about a visit of hers to southern Lebanon, uh, where uh, she had gone with with one of her friends who was from the south and told her how different life was before the 80s and the 70s when they had, you know, uh, village festivals and, you know, dabke in this village square, etc. And I thought, wow, that's so interesting. You know, we've already been through a kind of cultural desertification in the region. It happened after the revolution of of Iran, as Iran started trying to export its Islamic revolution and its ideals of how, you know, Shiaism should be understood and lived. And so all of these combined made me think that I was onto something about the year 1979 and what a turning point it had been for the region beyond a geopolitical turning point, because there are many geopolitical turning points in the region and in world history. This was also a cultural, social, and religious turning point, which had an impact on the region for the you know following 40 years to the point where today we often look back and think, what the what what happened to us? Which is the opening question of of the yeah, Fina. I love that. I love the opening paragraph. And, and it's not. I, I do want to say, you know, it's it's not asked in a sort of nostalgic. Oh, it used to be so much better. But in a more, you know, let let's shed. It's, light. it's like a, it's like a diagnostic question. Exactly. It's a diagnostic question because once you have the diagnosis, you know, you might be able to find a way forward. You know, you can't go back into time. You need to build your future differently. But what can we learn from who we are and who we were 
that can make us a better version of ourselves in the future. You know, Kim, I remember very clearly that day at Salon Beirut when we were sitting yeah. down a, f- a few years ago. And, and you for a, for a research assistant. You were looking for a research assistant, which and I, I'm, did, I'm very I, happy. I, I do want to give them credit. Uh, I, I, you know, yeah. I could not have done this book without them. Uh, I could not have written Black Wave without the incredible work of Ziad Diary and Misha Tobia. I mean, they were just fantastic, digging into archives, scanning newspapers, writing briefs, uh, transcribing interviews. I think we did the work of six years in just two, and they deserve you know, all, uh, all the credit Uh, for making it possible for me to uh, to deliver on time. You know, uh, teamwork, whether you're a journalist in the field, whether you're writing a book, or whether you are producing a podcast, uh, teamwork, collaborations is just a gift to people who create. And Absolutely. I see that Noura Abdel-Latif, uh, the social media manager for the podcast, People Like Us, has just logged on. So I want to you know, give thanks to her as well, because she has done an incredible job promoting uh, people like us on social media and is always full of ideas and full of creativity. And that's what it. makes working on these projects just so fantastic. Absolutely. So in that moment, I remember asking you, you know, what are you working on these days? And you said, I'm, I'm working on this new book and it's about 1979. And I'll out myself. I remember saying, what do you mean 1979? What happened in 1979? I mean, I know Iran, but I didn't know anything about the siege in Mecca, right? Um, but there are many, many people who are much more informed than I am. I'm curious, when you were pitching this story around uh, to people or just talking about it around dinner tables and at cafes and at bars in Beirut or around the region, did everyone say Oh, yeah, 1979. Well, of course, everyone knows that that was the moment. Everyone knows that that's... That is such a good question. Um, that is such a good question, Mikey, because it took me a very long time to, between, you know, that you were asking me earlier, the conversation with myself, you know, every project also starts first with a conversation with yourself in the sense that you're testing the thesis, you're not too sure about telling others, you're stress testing your, your idea, your, um, well, your thesis. And I remember I was racked with self-doubt because I thought I was onto something, but I just couldn't be sure. So I, I went out and I spoke to a lot of people. And the more I talked to Kim, I can't hear you. Hold on. Am I the only one? Please be pivotal. And just for, you know, those who have not read the book or haven't heard of it, it, it is also written in a narrative nonfiction style. It is, in the words of some of the readers, the feedback that I've gotten written almost like a thriller. You really want to know what happens next, even though obviously you know how it ends because, you know, we're all living in this region, whether we're in Pakistan or or Egypt or Saudi Arabia. So the book is really a tale of 40 years of um, uh, events unfolding from Pakistan all the way to Egypt with Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, Uh, and Iran uh, in, in, in between, and telling it through the lives of the people who were impacted by the geopolitics. So the geopolitics is the backdrop, but the story 
is the story of these incredible characters whom I meet in Saudi Arabia, in Pakistan, um, in Egypt. And what I found, and I write about it a little bit in the introduction, when I went to, to, to speak to them, whether it's Mehta Brashdi, the Pakistani television anchor who stands up to the dictator Ziyal Haq and says, no, I am not going to wear a veil on television. You know, who are you to tell me how I should behave as a Muslim woman? I know my religion. Or whether it's, you know, um, Ibtihal uh, Yunus in, in Egypt, a literature a professor of French literature whose husband uh, Nasser Abu Zaid and her end up having to go in exile because he's accused of blasphemy. You know, when I went to them and I said, tell me about 1979, I felt like they, I felt like I was a therapist and they were just suddenly this flood of emotions came out. Yes, 1979. Well, let me tell you how it wrecked my life, how it wrecked my career, how it changed uh, my destiny, how it undid, you know, my family. It was this flood of stories that came out. It's like the scene of the crime. Finally, somebody's asking about this. Yeah, but it wasn't an easy sell at the beginning for publishers in the U.S., And I really have to give credit to my agent and my editor who really believed in the project and who fought hard uh, for the book to be um, to be bought. Because the way that it works, you write a proposal and the proposal took me a year because I was stress testing this thesis in every single direction. Um, You write a proposal. At least that's how it works for nonfiction. You write the proposal and then your agent chops it around to publishers. I already had the publisher of the secretary. So we went to them and, you know, my editor at the publishing house was keen to have me, but she has to convince others around the table at the at the publisher. And it was, well, uh, another story about the Middle East. You know, haven't we heard this before? Sunnis Shias killing each other, Saudi Arabia, Iran. Yeah, you know, it's more of the same. And, and it took some, some explaining because short of writing the whole book, I had to come up with a you know very succinct way of explaining why this was going to be different. And yeah. the result is this book. And the result is also... Black Wave being nominated by the New York Times as one of the top 100 notable books of 2020. So how do you avoid, and this is more of a journalistic question, and in many ways I'm asking for a friend, um, how do you avoid the, the, how do you avoid, and you do this extremely well, this is why I'm asking you, how do you avoid falling into the trap of, you know, sensationalizing this stuff or, you know, like, um, you know, uh, portraying the real bad Arab, this uh, this uh, this region strife with uh, conflict and war and hatred and anger and and tension and um, how do you avoid that that pigeonhole and actually slap because some humanity on the, on the characters? Because we are not that stereotype. Yeah, we are yeah. a multitude, a diversity, a rich, culturally rich socially diverse region that deserves to be uh, better understood and appreciated by the world away from the, um, you know, stereotypes and away from the black and white headlines in, in the media. So it's, I don't find it difficult at all to uh, avoid those um you know, black and white depictions, because the region is full of nuance. And that's also what I tried to do 
with this book, Black Wave, when you, and I want to point out also the book is full of poetry, um, uh, uh, um, uh, um, references to music, to yeah. uh, fiction, uh, artists. Uh, I, I wanted to showcase the richness of this region. And I'm not talking about oil rich and I'm not talking yeah. about minerals. I I'm guess what I'm, I guess, rich. I guess what I'm asking is um, not how you can have the, have the ability to do that. Obviously you do. How do I avoid editors? How do you avoid editors and the sort of the, the natural market gravity downwards towards those tropes um, and maybe I, maybe there is no gravity that I'm, and it's sort of imagined. There is, you know, there is a certain gravity around the world to um, simplify everything. And it's not just with the Middle East. I mean, look at how things get simplified into polarization in the U.S. media about America itself. Yeah, I think definitely. it to deep misunderstandings about what is happening within the US. You know, this desire to be on one extreme or the other leaves out a whole uh, middle center that also wants to, to say something and also wants to be understood that is not, you know, only Trump or only Biden. There's, there's, there's a whole shades of, 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 of differences in, in the middle. And so I have great faith in working with the right people. So my editor, my agent, occasionally they say, oh, you know, can you spice it up a bit? And I'm like, no, actually, no, no. Pretty spicy. Spice it up. <laughs> um, you know, for, I, I got that a little bit with the secretary um, to sort of make it a bit more fun, a bit more. And I, I, I'm sorry. I mean, I wish I were more fun. You know, maybe, maybe my <laughs> my writing. You know, maybe I, I would be able to write about more fun subjects. But um, they they wanted the secretary initially. There was one one person at at my literary agency that thought the secretary could be more of a you know traveling traveling sisterhood type book and. You know, I'm boring. This is just not who I am. And so I went back really hard. I said, no, I'm not writing that kind of book. I'm writing a serious geopolitical book that will be accessible to a wide audience because I, I'm not a historian. Uh, I'm not an academic. Uh, and so I, I don't know how to write in a very uh, 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 straightforward, I don't want to say dry because you know, a lot of academics write in, in a great way, but, but my audience is always the, the wider public. Yeah. With the second, with the black wave, I, I did not get any, any pushback. So I have faith in, um, writing uh, in working with, with incredible people. And I have faith in the people who are listening and the people who are reading, uh, whether they're watching on the BBC when I when I'm reporting, or whether they're listening to me on the radio, or writing, reading my articles in the FT during you know at the beginning of my career, or reading my books, and and I think um, if you stay true to yourself, you you can get through. It takes more work, and you may not achieve you know massive fame. I'm quite um, pleased with you know how far I've gotten, and I'm incredibly pleased with the podcast as well because the podcast does exactly what you're describing, yeah. um, uh, Mikey. It tries to stay in the middle. And the middle is not sexy, but the middle is where a lot of people are. And I For think sure. there's a real thirst 
for thoughtful, um, nuanced, smart conversations, whether they happen on your podcast, which is what you're uh, doing, you know, challenging narratives, staying true to yourself and to the region, being kind, um, or whether it's through books that are really about explaining the world and a complex situation in ways where people go, aha, now I get it. And I'm so humbled by the reactions I got to Black Wave. I got people writing to me from Belfast in Northern Ireland, from Brazil, from Italy, not just the Middle East, saying, now I get it. Thank you. And even if only 10 people have read the book, and of course there were many, many more, and come back with this reaction, then I feel that I've done my job and at least, you know, managed to reach these 10 people uh, who have come away with a better understanding of the region that we live in. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you, the book you wrote is the book you wrote rather than The Secretary, The Journey of the Traveling Policy Briefing. Um, <laughs> or The so, Sisterhood, yeah. I mean, the, sister, the, the Sisterhood of the Traveling Well, one day uh, maybe I'll, I will light it up and I'll write something fun, but I, I don't know when that day will come. <laughs> so I want to ask you, before we get to the podcast, I want to ask you um, just one question. And, um, you know, many people lament sort of the the death of journalism in the states and um how journalism is in crisis and you know the death of journalism everywhere frankly exactly so this is what i wanted to ask you about states. in the arab world uh do you feel like journalism is under attack in precisely the same way or in different ways because of the the landscape that we live in so the problem of journalism in the us and the problem of journalism in the middle east is similar in some ways and different in other ways. Um, In the US, you have the issue of television, um, you know, daytime TV, um, uh, a cable television, which has become so polarized because they're looking for the viewers, they're sensationalizing, they have all these panels, there's there's no in-depth reporting um, anymore. So that feeds a whole climate that distorts the image. You have the issue of the death of local journalism. You know, what happens in between the East Coast and the West Coast? What happens at a local level? Yeah. What happens, you know, in, um, you know, city council reporting, et cetera. Because adverti- the advertising model is, is, you know, the business model is is kind of dead. Uh, And so lots of newspapers closed in between the two coasts. And so then you end up with the big newspapers, the LA Times, the New York Times, Washington Post, which do a great job, a fantastic job, but, uh, you know, they're not reporting on necessarily local elections. And so you you have a big gap in knowledge about what is unfolding in America, which I think so many, which is, I think, why so many people were surprised by the results of 2016. Um, and the lack of uh, advertising means that you have big tycoons who are buying up newspapers, slashing uh, the workforce, closing foreign bureaus, which means that um, you have less, you still have good reporting, but less reporting about the outside world for an American viewership. And it has to be sensationalized a little bit or summarized or simplified. I mean, I'm doing research into the 80s and looking at coverage of the from of American papers of the 80s in Lebanon. And the level of detail yeah. articles is, to me today, mind-boggling because you would never be able to publish that in the New York Times today. Your editor would 
think, oh, that's way too complicated. Can you simplify? Now, in the Middle East, the problem is a little bit different, but it's also tied to, and I'm, I'm very sorry about the slight squeaky, squeaking, squeaking in the background. I forgot to take away my dog's squeaky toy, which she has just found. Um, and so she's trying to tell me that perhaps you know, she wants to play, but I'll try to keep her as quiet as I can. Um, the, the problem in the Middle East is that you have a lot of state funded state-owned media that have never given us the right picture, the truthful reporting, because it's agenda-driven by the state, it's top-down. Um, you have some independent media, or I don't even want to say independent media. I mean, Al Arabiya and Al Jazeera are not independent, but they're a bit more out there. They're a bit more forward, or they used to be. But now I find them both to be incredibly agenda-driven. Not not directly state-run. <laughs> not, not directly state-run, yes. That's, uh, that's a good way of putting it. But still catering to a specific yeah. uh, agenda. And increasingly, you have a lot of great... Uh, independent online platforms like Daraj in Lebanon, like Rasif, like Mada Masr. But it's, an, it's, a, it's a tough battle, you know, it's yeah. an upward hill that is uh, a lot of work, but very worthy of, of support. And we need to be able also to have a discussion about subscribing, uh, subscription models, because these organizations, these News platforms cannot continue to operate with grants and fundraising. They, they need to be able to find this business model that allows them to be sustainable and independent. But yeah. leadership is just not ready, apparently, in the Middle East to pay even, you know, a, a small fee or a small uh, subscription uh, um, rate to make these, these uh, um, platforms sustainable. Before we go onwards, I want to talk about people like us, the podcast, because um, I think it's a really exciting, uh, exciting project. Um, so I, I'm curious to hear from you. You know, you're six episodes in. Um, you're in the middle of uh, the first season. Uh, what has the response been? The response has been really great. It's been um, really heartwarming. I'm so thrilled for. Uh, the team that has worked so hard on it to see the kind of responses we've been getting again from around the world. Similarly, as Black Wave and as the secretary, I wanted to speak to an audience in the Middle East and in the rest of the world, including the US, where we have our biggest audience at the moment. The idea came from uh, I was approached by Project Brazen, the production house that we're we're working with and they really wanted me to do a podcast but but I wasn't very keen on getting back on the road and you know doing a reported non-fiction narrative podcast because 20 years on the road I I just you know I wanted to move on from that and I wanted to do something a bit a bit different which is why I left uh news reporting and journalism and and I'm focusing on on books because also and that's you know partly you know in answer to your previous question you know I feel that journalism is is a bit broken for me I'm still trying to reconcile with um you know our coverage of the Syria uprisings and why that didn't have an impact on public opinion um the role of disinformation and um you know, the 2016 election and the role that the media played in, 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 in 
partly, you know, bringing up the income that, that it brought us. So I, want, I thought I came up with the idea of a conversation show that would be a conversation about the Middle East, but for a global audience, which would help um, challenge the narratives, the narrative, um, you know, highlight the incredible diversity of voices we have in, in the region and kind of show how we are all in it together. You know, we're all worried about some of the same things, whether it's accountability, impunity, corruption, climate change, um, you know, what the hell happened from Afghanistan to, to Hong Kong to, to Beirut, the overturning of Roe v. Wade, what that means for reproductives, for reproductive rights outside the role. So it's really connecting the dots between the Middle East and the rest of the world and having an equal conversation uh, that essentially says, you know, we're all in it together. Listen to us and we'll listen to you. And we're all, you know, we're, we're all people uh, with the same, you know, with the same concerns about the future. Do you see a, a for seasons two and sort of beyond, um, or fresh, I'd say for the rest of season one and beyond, when you when I heard people like us, I thought, okay, maybe this is actually going to broaden and maybe the 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 stitching that, stitches the entire season together and the entire series together is going to expand to Latin America and to Africa and to other parts of the globe. Um, is that the idea or is the idea to remain focused on understanding what makes the Middle East, uh, you know, what understanding what the Middle East is going through and how what it's going through is connected to what the rest of the world is going to as well? I really think we're missing a, um, a a program, a platform, a uh, a show that gives space to all these voices in the Middle East. There are a lot of great podcasts, including yours, including uh, you know a lot of the great work that Kerning Cultures is doing uh, for a regional audience, for the Arab diaspora, and for an international audience. What we're doing with people like us is connecting the Middle East to the rest of the world, and so we have people from outside the Middle East in the show. You know, we have yeah. Oleg Sotnik from Ukraine talking to us about, you know, what Putin's invasion of Russia, uh, what Putin's, well, that would be something, what Putin's invasion of Ukraine um, looked like to her as somebody who had warned about Putin's uh, military actions in Syria back in 2016, right? So we're really connecting the dots between this region and the rest of the world. So yes, we will have conversations with people outside of the region. But, you know, I don't think we'll have an episode that is completely focused on, you know, events in, you know, Brazil. I would want to have something that com that connects events in Brazil to uh, what we're going through in the region, where perhaps we'll talk about corruption. You know, how are they tackling corruption and how is Iraq tackling corruption? Yeah. You know, we have the first episode of the season where we have a woman from Afghanistan, Mukaddesa Yurish, we have somebody from China, and we have somebody from Lebanon, Lina Munzer, to uh, talk about you know, the sense of loss of freedom at the same time in these three cities. So I would like to give a voice to people from the Middle East to be part of this show, to express themselves, to counter the narratives by just being themselves. I'm not asking anyone to put on a show by just having an honest conversation, a candid conversation about the incredible work they're doing, about the cause that is dear to them, about the film they've just put out, um, and to allow people around the world to listen and connect. So the yeah. and, and that's the balance that we're trying to 
to, to, to strike. This show needs to be relevant for us in the region. It is a show for the region as well. So we're not dumbing anything down, but it also needs to be accessible to the world so that they can connect with some of the same concerns that we have, which they have as well. I love it. Um, I'm going to ask you two of our quick Q&A. I don't think we have time for all four, but I'll ask you two. One of them is, who would you love to shadow for a day past or present? I would love to shadow some of the great creators of of our times. I would love to shadow somebody like Leonardo da Vinci. How did he do it? Prolific, you know, multidisciplinary. What was his discipline? You know, some of the more recent writers, Haruki Murakami, what is their, you know, what is their routine? What are their, what are the tricks of the trade? How do they, how do they produce so much? What is their discipline? I'm always looking for the perfect daily routine and, and I'm still looking. So if anybody has any suggestions, <laughs> I'm open. Amazing. And then the other question I want to ask is what do people most misunderstand about your work? I think it's about, you know, um, the, you know, the, exp- the best expression to, to explain is how is the sausage made, right? How, how, how does it work? How, how do you do what you do? Um, I think people are often asking me, but where did you get your news? You know, you're on television, but who told you this? And, and it's sort of, you know, or they think that my mother, for example, always asked me, but, you know, what are you doing all day? You know, I see you on television at, you know, 5 p.m. or 6 p.m., but what have you been doing all the rest of the day? And I said, well... You know, I have to gather the information. I have to interview people. Then you have to edit. You have to, you know, write your script and you have to verify your information. So I think it's people are always intrigued by what does the day look like and where do you get the information? How do you verify? Which is a very important question these days because of issues with disinformation and media literacy, which, you know, should be taught in in schools. And then the other thing that I think people misunderstand is when I'm Before you go on, Kim, I just have to say... It is so heartwarming to know that the the mother of a New York Times bestselling author, <laughs> author and journalist also says, what have you been doing all day? That's very heartwarming. I appreciate that tremendously. Um, and so the other question, the, the other thing that I think people misunderstand, particularly in this region where you know, the state has such control over the media is they think that if you're traveling with the Secretary of State of the United States, you're somehow working for her. Um, and so I often have people say, oh, when you worked for Hillary Clinton, I said, no, 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 no. You know, I have great admiration for Hillary Clinton, but I don't work for her. At least I didn't as a journalist. You know, I reported on her. And by the way, I also reported on a Republican Secretary of State, Condoleezza Rice and, and John Kerry. And that sort of also, you know, people sort of think that if you're trying to explain a point of view, it means you are justifying it, Whether whereas I'm just trying to shed light on the reasoning behind it. Yeah, I mean, I, I find that to be... Uh a like a persistent misunderstanding um before we wrap up i have one last question for you actually um is is lebanon um and just because uh i'm here i'm curious about this is lebanon still producing really great journalists i think so yes i think lebanon is still producing a great a a great everything you know like the, the kim the teenager kim now in 2022 is she still becoming a stringer and then still working, you know, cutting her well, teeth? No, because the world of journalism has changed dramatically. You know, I don't want to age myself, but since I started my career in 99, 98, 
the world of journalism and how we consume and how we produce information has changed dramatically. Uh, and also there's a lot more appreciation for stringers and fixers and, you know, they're getting a lot more credit and bylines, which, you know, I was at the, you know, at the, I was in, in a way, you know, at the forefront of that pushing, pushing for some of these things to, 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 um, uh, to, to happen with a lot of other great um, colleagues in the field. But the world of journalism has changed dramatically. So I often get asked, what would be my advice for somebody starting out? And I, I really have to go away and think about that because I'm, I'm not really 100% sure. I think my one regret as a journalist is not having learned uh, not having learned a trade, you know, not having studied economics or not having studied law, not a trade, but because journalism is a trade, but not having studied in, you know, become a, a, a graduate in, in a specific field, which is so helpful when you're when you want to be a journalist and you want to um, cover some of the topics that we're dealing with today, like, you know, like uh, climate change or Bitcoin, yeah. etc. Um, but I think journalism is still incredibly important, but we have to rethink the model. Amazing. Well, Kim, thank you so much for spending an hour with us. It's I, I could uh, speak to you for hours. It's really an honor to have you on the series. Thanks for having me, Mikey. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, go to hafikita.com where you can learn about our Zoom events, our live events in 30 different chapters around the world, our social media presence, and our podcasts and YouTube stuff. You should know that everything we do is all towards a mission of converting passive interest in the histories and cultures of the Arab world into an active intellectual curiosity. By listening to this, you're a part of that movement, so thank you for being here. If you'd like to support our work, go to afikda.com support and join the hundreds of people around the world who make this work possible. Thanks.